University of Maryland Global Campus was established to bring a respected state university education to working adults at home and abroad. 70 years ago, we sent professors overseas to educate service members and their families on military installations and on the front lines. Today, we're online because that's where working adults need us, that's where you need us. We'll support your commitment to being a successful student with services that fit your lifestyle, and we offer more than 90 programs and specializations for where you are and where you want to be. University of Maryland University College is now University of Maryland Global Campus. We go the distance because times have changed, but what we're made for hasn't. UMGC offers online support for veterans, including resources at the Veterans Resource Center, no-cost digital materials replacing most textbooks, virtual advising, transfer credits, and lifetime career services. Speak to our dedicated military and veterans advisors who can help you find the right degree for your career path. Visit umgc.edu. Certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV. Here we discuss all things literary and LGBT. My name is River Kiro, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm your co-host, Wake Cook, and I don't have a special intro this week because <laughs> I, I'm my brain is on another planet. My pronouns are that's, he, him. <laughs> that's okay. I saw the notes, and I was like, are you going to come up with something on the fly, or is it just going to be like this? Um, so I think... Something I've sort of decided to do that I think would be a better idea than what we've been doing is we would announce the trigger warnings and the content warnings at the top, and I think that it's going to be, a, I think what I'm going to do from now on is put it in the notes description, in the description, so that people can just read it, and also so that I can come up with stuff retrospectively, because it's a little hard to always know what we're going to talk about until we talk about it. Yeah. So, I think that's what we're going to start doing. I know that, like, this is episode 9 or whatever, so who cares, but... And it, so, for some people, it's important. Yeah, that's true. I meant, like, who cares because we're a very small podcast and, like, we can probably name the number of people who listen to it. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to put this fucking thing on TikTok and I'm going to see what happens. Yeah, you've got you've got your dedicated fan base of TikTokers. Is that what, is that what oh, you call them? Unfortunately, yes. Ooh. Um, <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you reading uh, this week? Wake. It's um, been a while since we've done a recording, so we're probably gonna ca- we're gonna spend a long time on this segment because we've read a lot. Yeah, um, I've read a lot of comic books, so I tried to narrow it down to like the ones I enjoyed the most. Uh, honorary mention is Rainbow Rowell's Runaways, which I've kept up with. It's very very good. Chris Anka, my beloved, your art, but. I read uh, X Factor, the 2020 run, the first volume this week by Leah Williams and the art by David Baldian. Um, I found myself liking it more than I thought I would. Uh, it's a Marvel comic. And yeah, I was actually I was actually kind of impressed because Leah Williams has a very weird track record with writing. I find that she's very good at writing millennials, but when it comes to anyone who doesn't have a millennial sense of humor, her writing's not great okay but i ended up liking the book and i ended up liking the art way more than i thought i would um 
Uh, I will say this kind of ties into the theme of this episode, which we'll talk more about later. But Leah Williams has a very, very bad track record with writing Asian characters. And that is not changed by this book. It was very uncomfortable. I thought that uh, Rainbow Rowell had some issues with that, too. I haven't seen that, actually. But I'm not going to say you're wrong because you've read more. I'm not I'm not positive. I heard that, like... I heard in the grapevine that there's something about that, but I only heard it from one person, so that doesn't necessarily mean it's a corroborated source. Okay. So, yeah. But, yeah, you've read more of her writing than me, so I'd I'd take your word for it. From what I've seen... I read one... I think I read two books of hers. From what I've seen from Runaways, it hasn't really been a problem, but maybe maybe i might just also be blind to it because i'm not asian and that's not something that's going to pop up on my radar unless it's like glaringly ooh that's really Cring. that's really racist which this one is and it's also surprisingly homophobic <laughs> when it comes to the asian oh. when it comes to the asian characters it's surprisingly homophobic and i was like wow it's- so this is X Factor? This is X Factor. So on the one hand, the actual plot is really enjoyable. And if you're an X-Men fan, there's a lot to, of like Easter eggs that will really make you happy. But if you want Asian characters that are written like people, maybe don't read it. It's always hard to like... Well, to be fair, if you're looking for stuff in a com- in comic book world that's not like that's not indie graphic novels and like non-mainstream work you're basically dumpster diving and hoping yeah like i can get more i'll get more into leah williams later for her crimes but on a comic i would actually recommend wholly 100 percent uh volume two of sleepless was great oh yeah you read uh you talked about sleepless last uh last time or the time before or something yeah I i read the first volume and i loved it and it ended on a really great note um my only criticisms the art kept up really it was really tasty art really good the story was compelling i loved the characters i really really wanted to see them have a happy ending and they did but that my only criticisms would be i the the main plot of the story is that it's princess poppy and she is there's someone who's trying to assassinate her for political reasons and she's being protected by her knight and they're trying to figure out who's trying to kill her and that's the main crux of the story along with like their backstories and their relationship and the the reveal of who was behind the all these assassination attempts i'm not going to say i didn't it wasn't entirely out of left field but i wish there was more development as to who why this person was doing what they were doing and as well, part of the motivation was critical of the monarchy, which is not a spoiler. That's obvious throughout the whole story. And there's a lot of other points that are critical of the like monarchy as a system. And I found at the end they didn't... And these were like genuine criticisms that made sense. And I wanted to see them addressed. And I wanted to see the monarchy recognize what they'd done was wrong in the past. But they never did. Ah, it was kind so of like today, like today, it was kind of like, <laughs> oh, okay, so this person has reasons to hate the monarchy and it makes sense and it's sympathetic, but we're back to the status quo now that this person's out of the way. I always feel like any book that ends with re- with reaffirming the status quo isn't necessarily something that I really enjoy because otherwise what's the point of the journey, you know? 
Yeah, this one I tolerated it a bit more because it made sense for the characters to not really want to buck the system. And it's a very, it's only 11 issues long, so they're not going to get into that. And, and it was more about the relationship. So I, it was something that bothered me at the end, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't say it ruined the book. It was just kind of like, I w- if there were more books, I would hope that they expanded on it. That makes sense. But but it's very good. Highly recommend Sleepless. And the last thing I read was Royals Volume 1 and 2, another Marvel story starring the Inhumans. And Al Ewing, love him. He can do no wrong with his writing, in my opinion. And he's consistently the one bringing in new queer characters to Marvel canon wherever he goes. We have him to thank for Peter Quill being bisexual. Thank you. Thank you for your service. And it made me like the Inhumans, who I find really insufferable as characters. So so I went in going, I already don't really like these people, but I'm here for this one specific character, Novar, who is my pansexual cockroach man. I appreciate him. And I ended up really liking it. I found the art was inconsistent. It was a bunch of different artists who were trying to kind of, I'm not going to say have a cohesive look, but we're trying to have a specific feel and style. And it didn't work half the time because it seemed like they weren't clear on what these characters even were supposed to look like. So they would change between panels, which was very weird. I so I found you showed that... me some snippets of that. Yeah, and it was like one panel, a character would have short hair, and then all of a sudden she'd have long hair, and then she'd have short hair again, or her outfit would be different. And this is not like between artists, this is between panels of the same artist. So it felt really confusing. But, and I thought, so I found the art sometimes brought down the quality of the writing. But yeah, so I found the climax of the book was actually really good. Because with superhero comics, you expect like this massive fight scene. And that wasn't what happened. It was the main character and her husband, who is estranged from her. And they have a really deep conversation about their relationship. And that's the climax of the book. And it's, and the character, the husband, Black Bolt, he can't speak. But in this dream world, he can. And she's like, no, I've always heard you, even though you've never spoken, because you can't. That's part of his power. I've always heard you, and I've, but I've never felt more distant from you than I have been. Mm. And I fell in love with this other man. And her husband's like, no, I loved him too. And they have like this big conversation about why their relationship fell apart. And that that conversation leads into their strength going into not the final battle, but to the resolution of the story. And I thought that, and it's done all in watercolor and it's really beautiful. That's really cool. My, um, my question for you in regards to that is what do you sort of think about, like, there's kind of a stereotype in fiction of like a person's disabilities being erased in a, either a parallel world or like the afterlife or a dream world or whatever, like, how does that sort of apply to this particular scenario, or do you think it's different? I would say it's different because it came off to me. He always speaks with sign language, and but it came, but his wife was always able to just understand him even without words. So it came across like this is how she would be hearing him, like in her head. It was more like an emotional thing, not him actually talking to her. Oh, okay. Because I don't think he ever got his speech back. Like, he never he never does. 
but I, to me, it felt more like an emotional, like him talking to her rather than, Hey, it's me. I have my voice. But yeah, I, that was like the strongest part of the whole story. I thought it was really good. And the whole nonsense was worth it for that. <laughs> so I have talked for a long time about my silly comics. So what have you been reading? A lot. Um, cause it's been like a hot minute. Um, I have two that I want to talk about more in depth. Um, because they're very relevant to this podcast. And then three that I want to talk about in depth that are also really relevant to this podcast. <laughs> um, I've been reading a lot of queer books lately because it's just, like, this what I always do. Um, I went and I spent a whole bunch of money at Indigo, which I almost no- never do. I usually shop at indie bookstores, but I was like, I just want to go to, like, the big bookstore and just wander around the stacks for, like, an hour. Um, so that's what I did. But... I got all of pretty much everything I'm about to list, except for one as from the library, <laughs> because I'll ha- I'll buy books and then they will sit there for much longer than library books. Anyways, so the first book I want to talk about is Real Queer America by Samantha Lee Allen. It came out in 2019 and it was written just in the wake of Trump's election. Um, the sort of synopsis of the story is that it's a trans journalist who she grew up Mormon in Utah, I believe. Oh, you told And in the, um, yeah, and in the American South. And this is a nonfiction book. And her, she travels across all of the major red states. Like, she goes to Ohio, she goes to, I don't know, I actually can't remember if it's Ohio. She goes to Texas and Mississippi and Tennessee and Florida and, like, the sort of whole South area. And she interacts and makes friends and um, speaks to and interviews the people who work in the queer communities there. So she talks to a politician who organizes protests and stuff like that. She talks to a whole bunch of people who run gay bars and cafes, and she talks to someone who she really connected to when she was a ch- when she was a teenager. She was like one of the first men that um, she came out to as a trans woman, um, and she she's traveling. She's doing this road trip, so it's a road trip book. If you really like road trips, like I know a lot of people do, this is a road trip book, um, and she's traveling with her wife's ex-boyfriend who's a trans man (laughs) which is both cool and very complicated and very queer oh yeah it's hilarious i had a lot of really interesting sort of thoughts about this because the way like i am like a cap i'm um i don't identify as liberal quote unquote like capital l liberal but i'm very very leftist and this and like a lot of people here were kind of not as much um but they were also still extremely queer. Like, there was a lot of trans people in that book. Like, if you want, like, trans... Like, I'd say it's probably, like, 50% trans people and 50% everyone else. They talked about stuff that was... <laughs> they talked about stuff that was really, really topical for just a couple of years ago because she set out on her road trip the year subsequent the um, previous presidential election. So it was written mostly in 2017, 2018, and it came out as a book in 2019. Um, so it's not, not topical by, like, today's, uh, COVID-19 standards, but it's topical by, they talk a lot about the bathroom pills, and, like, she goes to a protest where they're protesting some legislation. They talk a lot about, like, stuff that was really contemporary for the time and conversion therapy. They interview a Mormon trans man who continues to be Mormon and participate in the church. And, um, I had a really interesting conversation with our mutual friend, Rin, who, is an ex-Mormon and queer, and, like, they had a lot to sort of say about that, like, you, that 
um, personally, they wouldn't be able to participate in Mormonism anymore because of the overall institution being extremely racist and problematic. So the fact that someone could, like, left it and mm-hmm. then came back is kind of bonkers to me. But, like, it's just a really interesting thing to read about in someone's life. And a lot of people sort of say that, like, oh, why don't you just move to, like, the West Coast or whatever if you're queer, like... But the reality is a lot of people don't have that option, and instead they put down roots instead of packing up and moving. So I thought that that philosophy was really interesting. And mm-hmm. communities are also seem extremely tight-knit in places like that, where they are, are like, I don't want to say more dangerous, but, like, it's a bit of a sketchier situation in some ways. Whereas here in, like, Vancouver, the queer community is extremely mm-hmm. spread out and huge. Like, you know everyone um, <laughs> in your, like, circle or whatever. Like, I know tons of people. But... Um, it's kind of, especially right now during the pandemic, it's really, really spread out and disconnected. But in this book, it was really focusing on the intimacy of the communities and the roots that they build and the work that they do inside those communities. So I thought it was an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal book. And I think I really liked it because I didn't 100% agree with everybody who was being interviewed. Like there was a lot of stuff where I was like, you know, like I can see it, but like, what if you just don't want to do that? And they also talked a bit about gentrification and poverty and stuff like that. I will say that, like, the two authors, or, like, the author and the sidekick of the book are white, and there are a lot of white people in the book, but they do do their best to sort of include voices of color and interview people of color. Um, So they do their best, but it is inherently from a white perspective, so I don't know what that's going to necessarily add or subtract from the queer experience in that case. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like, um, which I guess it kind of makes sense, there are a lot of white people (laughs) who live in the South. But, like, there's also a lot of black people, and I think they only interviewed, like, two or three, maybe? I know that there's one for sure, and then other ones I'm not positive. So, again, it's, um, but they didn't have photographs of everybody. Um, they had a photograph section, but, like, yeah, so I think that that's something that's worth keeping in mind, is that it is written from a white trans woman who has, who is, uh, uh, queer. So there we go. Um, my second recommendation is Original Plumbing. I don't know if anybody's heard of this because I, like, feel so stupid for not having heard of this before. It was, like, a magazine that ran for 10 years from 2009 to 2019, and this particular book that I read is, like, a 300-plus page compilation of their best issues of trans male culture magazine. Like, because original plumbing is, like, what trans men refer to as, like, their biz a lot of the time. Um, I thought it was absolutely amazing. It was so cool. The photographs were incredible. If you are a trans man, I'd say almost that this is required reading. It is extremely diverse. They the, Again, the, the two editors are white, so keep that in mind. They're white trans men. But they really make an effort to uplift trans men of color. Um, and they do interviews with, like, people who are just starting out their business, people who are really famous in the trans community. Like, they they talked to Kate Bornstein for one, episode, for one issue, which was, like, super awesome. Um, and... I really liked the earlier issues because it sort of started out in San Francisco as, like, an indie kind of zine-ish thing. The earlier issues were much shorter than the later issues, but towards the end, it turned into, like, a really polished-looking magazine, which didn't vibe with me as much because I really like the kind of indie, rougher qualities of things. Mm-hmm. Um, they do... There's 10 issues in total. Uh, sorry, 20 issues in total. Um, and they talked about, like, sex and sex education. They talked about trans male art. They talked about... Um, parenting as a trans man. They talked about what it was like to go to school. They talk about fashion and style and music. They talk about writing and, like, history and relationships. And, like, each issue is kind of specifically focused on one of those things. 
Um, the photographs are absolutely amazing. It's they the diversity of bodies is absolutely amazing. Um, I wish that they uh, I think they did do a, a few people who had disabilities, but I think not as many as I would have liked. Um, but it was very diverse as far as I could tell. Um, and they talked, it was just absolutely amazing, and they did lots of interviews, and there was lots of different voices, and it was really an amazing thing to read. I think that if you're a trans man, it is, is definitely required reading, as I said. Um, it just kind of, I don't know, it gives you hope. <laughs> it's just like, wow, there's, like, people who choose not to go in tea, there's people who chose not to have top surgery, there's people who did, who did have those, and who did have bottom surgery, who did do these things. There are people who live their lives this way, there's people who chose to carry children, there's people who didn't. There's just, like, a lot of diversity in everything that happens, and I don't know, it was just really wonderful to read, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, um, let me think. So I'm going to rapid-fire three books that I'm not done reading yet, because I can't, uh, so I can't quite get my opinion on them. Um, the first one is Love After the End um, by Joshua Whitehead. Well, edited by Joshua Whitehead. It is a compilation of two, uh, queer and two-spirit science fiction fantasy stories that are written by indigenous authors. It seems like primarily, um, quite a few Anishinaabe authors specifically. Um, and they, it's just a whole bunch of different short stories. And if you really like sci the science fiction kind of speculative fiction, um, I think you're going to really enjoy this. I'm about almost halfway through it. Um, I haven't fully drawn conclusions from it yet. Some of the stories I liked more than the other ones, but the... It's very, very, um, from a very indigenous perspective, like, uh, so there's a lot of themes of being really connect, of extra planar travel, but how you feel and relate to your, to earth and the home planet and the place where you come from. So it's, um, uh, it talks a lot about kind of, uh, it's less of the fantasy side. It's more speculative fiction, like what if questions, um, one, was one story that I thought was really interesting was a particular one that talked about um, a family. One one parent was indigenous and queer, and the other parent was a white woman, and they had a child together. And they had the option to move away from the planet because because Earth was being decimated, and the indigenous person decided to stay behind, and their um, or they wanted to stay behind, but they weren't sure. Um, and they wanted to go with their wife, and they sort of did made all the preparations, and they were just about to go, and the wife got on the, uh, transport, and they only had one ticket, so they couldn't, like, chicken out, basically, and then the kid ran away, so the indigenous person had to go and catch their kid, and then the kid's like, you didn't want to go to another planet, and neither did I, and their wife goes, and then the two of them have, they sold all their possessions, so they have pretty much nothing, so they have to go and find a community, and that's kind of where the story ends. Like, Damn. Yeah, it's it's stuff like that. So if that's the kind of thing that you would really vibe, highly recommend. A uh, book that I just started is A History of My Brief Body by Billy Ray Belcourt, another queer indigenous author. Um, and it's a very short, very, very beautifully written book. I'm about 10% of the way through it. And it's just kind of reflecting on his life and his memoirs. And it's very poetical. So I really enjoy that. And a book that I'm 20% of the way through is Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar, who is a trans author of color. And it is a YA fiction book. I think we talked about it briefly before, but now I can sort of give my opinions a little bit. Um, it's about a trans guy who lives in New York who is um, queer and he is a person of color. I think he's I think he's black, but it's not specific, but it, um, I'm only 20% of the way through, so I'm not sure. Um, and he's an art student, and he's 17 years old, and then one day, 
when he goes to school, he finds out that somebody set up a gallery in the front hall of the school with pictures of his old, before he transitioned, and labeled with his dead name. Um, a lot of the stuff that he talks about I really relate to, like his feelings about his body and stuff like that. He's post-op and he's like fully transitioned. Um, he has conflicts with one, with his dad, but his mom, when he came out to her over email, she never responded, and they haven't been in contact in, like, three years. Um, and my only problem with it is that I think I can see where it's going because it's a little too obvious, because there is a girl that he went on, there's a girl and a guy who it could potentially have been the person who made this gallery. Um, he is 100,000% positive that it's the guy, but the way that it's going, I can sort of feel like he's going to end up in a relationship with him and he didn't do it because he went on a date with this girl, like three dates with this girl. And she says, and she eventually just, um, after just like hanging out and being awkward and stuff, she eventually is like, "Mm, you know, I don't think I could date a misogynist because he transitioned. Ah, ha ha. Yeah. And she makes, like, a lot of little snide comments, and she seems like kind of a dick, but he kept this to himself because he doesn't want to, like, upset the friend balance because he's, like, um, like, his best friend is kind of, kind of like, f- sort of friends with her, so he never outed her for saying this shitty thing. So I am, like, 100% positive that it was her that did it, but he also has beef with this other guy, and he's so positive that it's this guy, and he's, like, trying to Instagram stalk him, and, like, this guy used to date his best friend, and I'm just like, I just don't vibe it, like, I just don't think that, no, um, I sort of wish that I, I'm 20% of the way through, and I feel like if they were going to introduce an additional character who could have possibly done this, they would have already done it, so I'm feeling like it's her, like, because, um, She's done, like, a lot of really scummy things. Like, right after they stop dating, she announces to everybody, like, oh, just so you guys know, I only date girls. And then he's just like, what the fuck am I to you then? (laughs) Oof. Yeah, so it's a lot of that. um, And a lot of stuff about family. Um, So I really enjoy... I'm really enjoying it so far, but I kind of have to take it in short bursts because, like, a lot of those really sort of heavy topics um, that That I find a little bit... Yeah, I'm taking my time with it, um, so it's, I'm probably gonna, I probably won't get back to you with another update until I finish it, and I don't know how long it's gonna be. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, and actually, I might switch from audiobook to something else, because I kinda just wanna speed through it, um, cause I, I'm so sure that it's her, and, like, that's the one part of the book that I don't like as much, is, like, I'm so sure that it's her, that, like, there's a lot of other stuff that's happening in his life. Like, he wants to go to school. He wants to, like, do these other things. He's having trying to fix his relationship with his parents and his best friend. But, like, I'm so focused on, like, I'm so sure it's her. Like, come on, man. Don't be stupid. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, I just kind of want it to be done. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's YA, and I feel like if you're, if, if, uh, it was, like, a younger person who didn't listen to this podcast and didn't read my speculations, they might not have picked up on it, but unfortunately I'm like, no, dude, you are way too conspicuous, like, I know you hate him, but it's definitely her, so I'll let you know if it actually is her, or if I'm, like, so wrong, (laughs) like, if I'm, if I'm really wrong, I'll come back and I'll say I'm sorry, (laughs) um, okay. So, we've talked for 30 minutes about our books, um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the main meat of this episode, which is, um, so the writer you like is problematic. Now what? Because I want to, st- I want to start off with saying, I actually redact, I make a, I'm making a redaction from last episode, because last episode I recommended a book called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee, but 
almost immediately after we posted that, I found out that she'd done some kind of shit things, which is like, I guess I can, I guess it's up to you and your opinion because I was like, oh, this book is like pretty good. And I'd only read the one book and I hadn't looked into the author. I'd like try and see what her deal was or whatever. And the answer is, um, she's done a few sort of shitty things. Like she's been really rude to people. She did this thing where she's autographed other people's books, which like whatever, I guess. But like, yeah, I'd say at worst, I'd say at worst it's tacky. It was tacky. Like, someone mistook her for the author of Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Her, and she crossed out, like, the author's name and wrote her own name. Which, like, that's just kind of stupid, you know? Like, now someone's got this book that, like, ha- that if they did find the author, they wouldn't be able to get it signed. So, like, thanks for making them throw away $30, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's a little shitty. But, like, the main issue was that she's written her book that's coming out soon. I don't know what it's called, but... She wrote a preview that um, early access people were able to read, and she misgendered her character through the entire description, and it's supposed to be a trans man story, but it's written, again, this is something we've talked about before, from the perspective of, like, oh, this is just, like, a historical quirky girl, quotes, that's dressing up as a boy, and then, like, becomes a boy. So, like, that's always kind of oof, you know? Yeah, because, like... I feel if you're writing a trans character, the twist should not be that they're trans because often I see that as justification as why the description is misgendering the character. Cause it's like, Oh, they don't know they're trans yet. That's bad writing. Do you want them to like be surprised that they're white? You know, do you want yeah. them to be surprised that they're cis? Like the way, the reason that that's problematic specifically is because it, praise on the fact that we all in, assume inherently that people are cis. Yeah. Like, and the reality is that's not the case, and there are there is a very, very large, ever-growing population of trans and non-binary people. Cis should not be seen as the default, and when we tell stories like this and reinforce the stereotype, it reinforces the idea that cis is the default, and anything like that is a twist, or it's from, like, uh, you know? Yeah. So, like... You wouldn't do that with pretty much any other person's identity except for, like, disability. Like, I I heard about the story of this book one time where, um, I, I don't know how I feel about this. And again, neither one of us um, has a visible or invisible disability, so we can't really speak to this. But it made me feel weird. It made me feel a type of way. The story of this book, I can't remember the title, is that a girl has been told that her whole life she has, she's basically allergic to the outside world. And then at the very end of the book, it's revealed that her mom is essentially schizophrenic and has been keeping her in sight because she was afraid of her dying and lied to her and made up this whole illness so she actually doesn't have a disability after all. Like, and the part that's weird about it is that it's told through the frame of a love story between, like, her and the neighbor boy that she can never see and he can never come in because he's got germs, you know? Yeah, that's... Like, that feels kind of weird. Like, I know people who are immunocompromised, and I feel like immune systems are not something that we can joke about in, uh, 2021. No. Um, <laughs> like, I can't see anybody. So we're all this bitch now, you know? <laughs> that's just our reality now. So, like, that made me feel a type of way. Um... But I don't know, like, I feel like a lot of people were really, really, um, disheartened and upset and hurt when J.K. Rowling turned out to be a fucking huge asshole. A lot of us, like, not to appropriate A-A-V-E, but we've been new. <laughs> like, like a, lot of, a lot of people, like, 
basically, as soon as I kind of became an adult, I was like, oh, you know, Harry Potter's, like, not that great. Like, it's, yeah. Like, there's some parts of it that are really good, but there's other fantasy stories, you know? And and then it beca- it got to the point where, like, the author's views as, like, a person and the way she wrote her books, they kind of tied together. Like, you couldn't separate them. Because I know that people yeah. make the argument for death of the author in that, like, oh, just because the author thinks this doesn't mean that their work reflects that. But it's also really, really hard to separate because even if it's not directly related to, let's say, trans issues, you could still see, like, elements of the way her world, like, the way she built her world and the way she thinks. That's still part of her writing. Yeah, um... It's been a while since I've read the books, since probably, like, high school, but I think that there are some issues with, like, Rita Skeeta being coded as a trans woman. Yep. Um, and that, and, like, the fact that she shapeshifts into an insect and has this insidious, like, personality and, like, tries to go into places where she shouldn't go, like, that definitely says something. The fact that, like, in fucking book one, my dude, book one, like, halfway through it, when we were introduced to, like, the boys and the girls Gryffindor Towers, first of all gender segregation, whatever. Second of all, when the boys tried to go up into the girls' tower, it turned into a slide and they weren't allowed in. Yeah, which, when I, when you read it as a kid, you're just like, haha, slide. That makes sense. But then you read it with, like, gender understanding and comprehension, and you're like, ooh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. There's a lot of issues, like, not to put too fine a point on it, my friends, but, like, what the fuck was, like, the whole second book taking place in the girls' bathroom? Like... <laughs> What the fuck? Um, not only that, but, like, there's been issues with racism and anti-Semitism. I think the biggest one for me that makes me go, like, the goblins are kind of, like, they're rough, but, like, you can, if you look at them by themselves, you're like, okay, like, that's not great, but, like, maybe she's really dumb, who knows? And then you look at the house elves that want to be slaves, and you're like, you wrote a race in your fantasy world that exists explicitly to be enslaved and when they're not enslaved they get upset about it yeah (laughs) and like and like Hermione spends most of like the fifth book trying to free the house elves and everyone talks to her like she's crazy and even the house elves are like no we enjoy being enslaved it's fine you're just speaking over us and it's so weird it's so so fucking weird so weird no the there's a lot of issues in it like the things that jk rowling is good at is like world building and having way too many characters yeah um and at least like compelling us like it's still compelling unfortunately like we can credit where credit is due but at the same time there's like other books now guys it's been a while like <laughs> um it has been very heartening to see a lot of the cast who were playing the harry who playing the harry potter characters really actively distance themselves from jk rowling yeah. Um, especially because, like, they were kids when they were working, a lot of them, so, like, who knew, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and in the last year, like, it's almost impossible to name, like, all the sort of shitty things she's done. Mostly it's, like, girl log off of Twitter. Yeah, another, like, another crime she has committed is she has a detective series, and she's, uh... Oh, yeah! She's, right! She's been blatantly transphobic and Islamophobic throughout most of the books uh, the big twist of the one that just came out which i don't even remember the name for because i don't want to waste brain cells but the big <laughs> twist is that the character dressed up as a woman 
and was a man dressing up as a woman to kill women. Which is so, like... Like, come on, man. Like, Psycho already did that shit in, like, the 1960s, and it still wasn't cool then. Like, <laughs> like, come on, man. Like, we already, um, like, we should, like, we already had Buffalo Bill, and that was terrible and awful and should not have, have happened. We, have we, have we not moved past this as a society? Like, come on. <laughs> like, even Science of the Lambs did mildly better than that, because, like, mildly better than whatever the fuck J.K. Rowling is doing. Because they like, um, um, uh, my ma- my my main lady Jodie Foster was like, oh, transsexuals aren't inherently violent. Yeah, they. And I was least... like, okay, yeah, this like one throwaway line you did like oh like already is better than all fucking shit that J.K. Rowling's doing. Yeah, at least they tried. <laughs> at least they tried. They were like, they were like, no, Buffalo Bill is a man. He's just weird. But like, it still doesn't look good, guys. Like. Eh. You know, you can enjoy Silence of the Lambs as long as you can, like, intellectually be okay with that. But I tried to watch it recently, and it was just, ugh. Yeah, we watched um, we I, watched it together, and we were like, huh, this hits different. We were like, wow, this feels different. Because I was like, when I was in high school, maybe it's because, like, when you're in high school and you, like, have no idea what gender is, you're just, you let, latch on to anything that's even remotely different from what you're used to, and you're like, oh my god, like, cross-dressing? Oh. <gasps> So, um, my brain in high school was like, oh my god, this is, like, so good, and I read the whole trilogy of books. Weirdly, the other two books don't do that shit. So, like, take what you will of that. Um, it was just this one book, so we know it's not a theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I watched the movie again, and I was, like, this year, and we were both like, oh, okay. And with Silence of the Lambs, I don't get the impression that the author chose Buffalo Bill to be like that as, like, a commentary on gender or being trans, I got more the idea of one of the most infamous serial killers of all time did that shit. So that's, like, oh, this is... Yeah. This is a creepy thing he did. This... I'm gonna put it here because it's a super creepy thing. It'd make for a good mystery. Yeah, like, the... Um, Ed Gein is a serial killer that inspired a lot of different things, including Sansa the Lambs, including, including Psycho. Yeah. And the real life Ed Gein was obsessed with his mother and preserved his mother, his dead mother in his house and did kill and murder women and skin them and yeah. use them to make various, various objects and things. And I think that they just kind of ended up marrying the ideas of skinning people with the idea of, um, internal transformation or metamorphosis, but not necessarily in a gendered way. Yeah. Like, it's really hard, it's hard to read into it, because I feel like gender does come into play in that, but this was written by, like, a white cis guy in, like, the 1970s, so it's just kind of, it's more the idea of, like, um, take, uh, yeah, well, I don't know, like, it's hard to say, because at that point you can say, like, oh, maybe they're just, like, taking, taking the women for what, like, what isn't theirs, and, like, um, the idea that you're appropriating the skin of another woman in order to become a woman yourself. Like, that's, like, a weird sort of theme, isn't it? It's weird. It's definitely complicated. And, yeah, so I can't, there's no way to definitively be, like, this is the motivation. But with Rowling, that was the motivation. So another author that I was kind of thinking about is Joseph Boyden, which I have issues with. I don't know if you're familiar with this author. I'm not. Not of hand. So, he is a Canadian author, and while I was going to school, I read one of his books. I think it was Three Day Road. Um, yeah, Three Day Road. And what's really interesting about him is that 
at that point, I was under the impression that he was First Nations, and some were a lot of people. Oh, it's it's this guy. It's this guy. Like, so, I thought it was, like, an incredibly good story, and I thought about it really, um, it, it touched me very deeply, and it was a story that I had to read for school, but he was, like, he kind of did this thing where he was, like, uh, and he didn't, like, admit whether or not he was First Nations, and then when people were like, hey, aren't you, like, from Scotland or whatever, he was like, yeah, man, sure. And then they're like, how come you're writing only First Nations books? How come all of your characters are First Nations, and you're trying to write about it as if you're a First Nations person? Because I know we've we've talked about it on this show before, the idea that if you're, that we should encourage people to write outside of their lived perspectives, but not tell that story like you're an expert. No, he was like, this is a fucking 400 plus page book that yeah, so th- takes place in an extremely specific indigenous location in Ontario and talks about Wendigos, which we already know is a touchy subject. Yeah, yeah. at that point, that's, that's just straight appropriation. No, it's extremely embarrassing. And like, yeah, there's like a lot of issues with that. I think there was like a trans woman author that I was, and this is where it gets extremely complicated. There's a trans woman author who was implying that she was First Nations in one of her works, and everyone's kind of like, but aren't you, like, super white? And he, she was like, oh, no, I never I never said that. And we're just like, okay, but did you or didn't you imply that? And then so I was unable to recommend her book because um, in an article I was writing for work, um, and because I, I was like, I kind of don't want to risk it because what the fuck? Like, yeah, you know, I have a... So... And the problem is that, like, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that makes you think about it. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts, or should we go um, to a break? Let's, let's go to a quick break. Yeah, let's take a quick break, because um, we've been talking for a while. Um, yeah, let's go for a quick break. And now, a word from our sponsor. That's me, your boy Wake. I'm excited to announce that my horror comic, Iris, is now available through Wildstar Press. Iris Ferguson gets more than she bargained for when she gives her college sweetheart a second chance. He promises to only have eyes for her, but takes this declaration to a very literal and horrifying degree. If you're into stories that center toxic relationships and body horror, I recommend it. If not, give it to a friend so I still get money. You can find a link to the comic in the show notes, and I highly recommend browsing the other products published by the press. They're all very high quality. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, and we're back. So, realizing that authors are problematic is something that's very difficult for a lot of people. We talk a lot about, like, authors that are problematic, but the issue is not so much, yeah, it's more like, yeah, we know, now what, kind of thing. So, the issue is, like, a lot of people were really heartbroken over Harry Potter, and my two cents is, for, for me personally, I don't think I'll be able to enjoy Harry Potter the same way again until she's fucking dead and no longer profiting from my money. Like, the author profiting from what I can contribute is something that's a really big 
that's really big per that's really personal to me. So that's why I pirated <laughs> Stephanie Meyer's books because I wanted to read them and laugh at them because I don't want to give that bitch a single cent of money. And like, no, I don't want to give J.K. Rowling any more money if I if she's like. 90 years old and has one foot in the ground and I'm kind of like, oh, you know, maybe I want to read Harry Potter again. I'll go and, like, get it from, like, a used bookstore or whatever. I don't want her to profit from my entertainment at all. Um, I would much, no. much, much rather give my money to people who deserve it. <laughs> um, and I feel like this, and, um, one thing that I was sort of thinking about is, like, stuff that are, like, what can, what should you just write off as being entirely awful what or what can you study academically or is there a line between studying stuff academically and reading things for pleasure because like we read a lot of essays by really problematic old white guys most of them are dead so they're not like profiting but like yeah if you read something even academically you have to be extra conscious when you read it because otherwise you begin to internalize the ideas of that thinking um so i think reading you know like i don't know i'm having a hard time sort of parsing this thought what do you think I think it's complicated because different books can mean different things to different people. Like, for me, Harry Potter was a big part of my childhood, but it's not the end of the world for me that J.K. Rowling's a piece of shit and is going to burn in hell someday. Like, I'm able to distance it from it, but other people aren't. Like, that was a much bigger part of their life. So I can understand why for some people who might be trans, this is way more devastating for them than it is for me who's also trans and it's just kind of like ooh like oh man really okay (laughs) and it's another example i found was orson scott card like i don't give a crap about ender's game i don't give a crap about the books but i know for a lot of people his being a part of the lds church and his being violently homophobic that was really hard for people and even though that's not this is news to me river yeah i'm so sorry uh, no, that's okay. I, I only read, like, the first, like, quarter of the book and then I got bored, so, No, like, he's... Now I feel justified. No, he's, he, he kind of went off the deep end in 2013 and was like, I hate gay people and I'm gonna be bold about it. And people were like, hey, Orson, shut up. <laughs> so, like, but I know for some people who really, really loved the Ender's Game series, that was really hard for them. So, like, who Mm -hmm. am I to tell them to suck it up and throw away their books because I don't give a shit about his work? Whereas for some people, that might have been their whole childhood. So I think it's... I think... Like, just that emotional investment that some people have in these materials, it's really... It can be hard. And I don't want to judge people as a... Especially people who are affected by the views of the authors in, like, a blanket statement. Like, you should do this. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think that the people who are affected by the statements of the authors have, I don't want to say more of a right necessarily to share their opinions on what they should do, but a little yeah, bit, I think, <laughs> you know, I'm more like I would, I would much rather listen to like a black person's thoughts on Mark Twain and like the way that black people are represented in that book than a white person, because no matter what, they are going to be biased and I think that I'd rather listen to someone who is affected yeah. by that. Um, yeah, that's a... Uh, 
like old books, I think have a particular flavor. But at the same time, I feel less bad about it because the authors are dead, and some people might have different views. And as a as a trans person, though, like if I read anything that's older than like uh, like five or ten years old, then there's like a really good chance that whoever wrote it really really hates trans people. Yeah. Like if you once you pass back, like if you're not reading stuff that's written by a queer person, like pre the newest rights movement, you probably don't have good odds. Like. Yeah. Even if they're people of color, or... And if you're trans, even if that person's gay, you might have a bad... <laughs> you might not have good luck. So it's like, how much of it are you willing to sort of just be like, whatever? And how much of it... I think if you're contemporary and you're still being a piece of shit, I think there's no reason why we should give contemporary people money. Yeah. Um, like, if you read one book and you're like, oh my god, that was a really good book, and then you find out that the author's part of the KKK, don't buy their second book. Yeah. Like... Because even if it, even if they are, like, even if they're like, oh, there's no black people in the book. Yes, there's no black people in the book. Wonder why? Wonder why. Like, <laughs> like whether or not they overtly state the themes of what their political view, views are, their themes are going to slip into their writing. Exactly. And, yeah, and either way, do you really want to give your money to, a, to like, a, uh, a piss baby? Like, really? When there's, like, plenty of other authors who are probably doing the same ideas, but better. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, that's sort of how I feel is, like, just be conscious where you spend your money and don't let anybody tell you necessarily what to do with your time or what to do with what books you want to read or anything because I think that you should be able to read anything you want. Um, that is, but, you know, like, ask yourself, is that something, is that someone you're okay giving money to? Ask yourself, is this someone whose ideas you want to internalize? Is this someone you want to waste your time on anymore? Is this, or if they're like dead or you decide that you don't care for whatever reason, then like, why? Yeah. And it's harder now to be ignorant to people's innermost thoughts because Twitter has everything. So most likely, if someone is a bigot, you're going to find out because something is going to come up on their Twitter or on their Facebook for, like, the five people that use it or wherever. Like, for, like, <laughs> I know I said, I alluded, I'd tie this back to Leah Williams, and I will because I love dunking on her. Because, like, you can, like, read her work and you could, I could see how people could be like, oh, no, no, she's not trying to be racist or homophobic towards especially gay men. For some reason, she is really weird about gay men. And you could be like, oh, no, that's not what she was trying to do. But then you look at her Twitter and you look at things she has said and there's no doubt that she holds. Also, like... Because, no, no, you're yeah. good. Because, like... Sorry. The character I'm talking about, Akihiro, he is bisexual and he is Asian. And there's, you read the way she writes him and it's very clear she's uncomfortable with how to write him. And then you look at what she says outside of the book and she's a professional writer and she's calling this character, like, pardon my language, a fuckboy slut. And you're like, you can't say that. That's extremely... Ooh, it's like, disgusting. Uh Something that I want to also address and, like, something that I want to plant in the brains of anyone who's listening is, like, for people, I feel like a lot of people want to soften the blows of stuff that they really liked. They're just like, oh, well, you know, maybe they didn't mean it. Maybe they didn't do this. Like, especially if you like it. Why the 
fuck do you want to defend someone who has these views? Do you want to be complacent in this? Exactly. I feel like there, there comes a line, like, I don't support, um, I don't necessarily, I don't, I do not support the harassment culture that also exists on the internet right now. Um, I feel like that's worth saying because this podcast is hosted on the internet and a lot of what we're talking about is also from the internet. So there is a a tendency to gang up on people, especially people who don't necessarily deserve it. But that doesn't mean that you have to be complacent in people who do deserve your criticism. Yeah, and... Also, if they choose to put their thoughts out on the internet, then they get to choose to have consequences to their actions. Exactly. And, like, I said earlier, I might keep reading X Factor, but I'm not going to because I just remembered she said that and now my skin's crawling. But... Like... Oh, yeah, and, um, speak... Uh, yes, go ahead. And just, like, but the problem is this book is one of the only books that has a majority queer cast so i could Fuck. S- so i could see how people would be like well where else am i going to get my representation the answer is anywhere many else. other places many other, <laughs> many places. other places look like, elsewhere go, like and here's something that i feel like is also a lot of people want to go to the bookstores and buy books. You don't necessarily have to. There are a lot of people who have self-published books and stuff like that. There are a lot of people who post free webcomics. There are a lot of people, and you can support those authors directly by giving them, by being a patron. Um, I think that, um, And something else that I want to address is earlier I made the, I jokingly said Twilight's not that bad. I changed my mind after reading New Moon. It's actually extremely racist. It is so much more racist than I thought it was. I thought it was just like, ooh, kind of bad, like before, like, ooh, poor choice of words. But she consistently describes them as russet-skinned, aka red. She consistently has this theme of indigenous men being large and brutish. She is very, she does not know anything about the culture. She completely rewrote their history for her own lore. It is horse shit. And not even Don't like- Stephanie. Yeah. Not even, sorry, sorry, sorry. Not even, like, a little bit. Like, she made up her own indigenous OC lore. Like, this isn't, she just took the name of an existing group of people and just tacked it on to, like, this mystical bullshit that she made up. It's like a, it's like a parody. I've fucking been to La Push. Like, I've been down to, um, Quinault. Like, I went to Canoe Journeys there in, like, 2014, and, like, everyone there was really nice. It was a great time. Um, we drove through Forks and saw the Twilight shop, and it was, like, right after Twilight was a big thing, and we were all like, <laughs> that's funny. But I was still in my, like, eh, Twilight is so cringe. It's like, now I'm like, oh, man, Twilight's really cringe. Like, <laughs> but the thing that cracked me up beyond everything is that a lot of the, co- um, so brief history lesson from a white person, a lot of the coastal communities on the Northwest Coast and Pacific Coast area share a lot of cultural roots, um, and they share a lot of um, similarities and stuff like that. So if you, but if you see someone saying, "Oh, this is Haida," and they're pointing pointing to Washington, no, that's not Haida. No, <laughs> but there are. But the thing is, though, that was really common among all the cultures and a lot of people here was ocean going canoes. In where I grew up, they were called Gilwa, and they'd be like big canoes that could carry like eight people to twenty people to like thirty or forty people, like depending on the size of the canoe. And in her book, she called them ships. They were like the cute people traditionally built ships. And I'm like, ships have sails, bitch. These are, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> ships have sails. They have sails. They don't build, they build, 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 building ocean going canoes. And to verify that, 
because apparently, like, she chose not to do this. I went onto the website that was created by the, it was like QuiuteNation.org, and like, they were like, yeah, and the Quiute were known canoe builders. And this is where we lived, and this is our culture, and like, they have like their own, they have Quiute mythos, and a lot of them are really common stuff. Like, they have like a raven figure, which like, pretty much every culture of the West Coast has a raven figure, um, like a sort of trickster. And like, there's names of it. It's there. You can look. But instead, she named up these, like, Hayayakala names. Like, not only do they share no roots in the Quiut language, but she just made them up and maybe pulled them from babynames.org and looked in the indigenous section. Like, yeah, like, like she was, like, indigenous-sounding-names.com. Like, and then she picked, like, three. Yeah, like, I wrote a short story recently that had Inuit main characters, and I spent, like, 30 fucking minutes trying to pick the perfect name that sounded, that was, like, a traditional Inuit name, but I was like, oh, but, like, where is it supposed to be located? Okay, it's Canadian, so I think this is, like, from, like, the Baffin Island area, and I was, like, I spent, like, 30 minutes trying to figure out this character's names for, like, a six-page story, (laughs) and she chose to, like, not have any of that for her fucking anyway. Okay, so Twilight is really racist. Don't spend money on Twilight, but, and so, yeah, Anyway, I think you're allowed to recycle your books if you don't want them anymore. You have to check your local recycling laws. Um, there's some books, um, I checked, uh, in, in Vancouver, unfortunately, you can't recycle your books, even though I have done that. Oops. Um, you can make crafts out of them. If you don't mind sharing them with the world, you can put them in a little local free library if you don't want to keep books from problematic authors anymore. Um, there's no reason to keep books if you look at it on your shelf and it makes your stomach turn. If you're brave, you can just eat them. I'm um, okay. <laughs> With what? Fava beans and a nice Chianti? Ah, I see what you did. I see what you did there. <laughs> I thought that was a good joke. I thought so too. But yeah, so um when I I when I found out that shit about Mackenzie Lee, I stopped reading her book. I bought it like six months ago and I was about halfway through it. Actually it was more closer to a year ago. And I was about halfway through it, and I was like, eh, you know, because I have a hard time with YA sometimes. It's just, I get bored. But I was like, I kind of don't want to read it anymore. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to spend four hours of my life reading a book that I don't want to read. So I'm taking it off my reading list, and I'm going to give it, and I'm going to put the book in the little free library. And that is what I did. Yeah. So, yeah, like... I feel like people shouldn't be discouraged from that. Um, it's also why you should buy books from, you should borrow books in the libraries because then you don't have to spend money. <laughs> and if you find out an author's shitty, you can just give it back. <laughs> but I feel like a lot of people sort of hesitate and they're like, oh, I don't want to get rid of a book. I love my book collection. Don't keep shit that doesn't make you happy. Mary Kondo your life, man. Yeah, like, why do you really want that there? If it's bad, like, I got rid of a Joseph Boyden book that I got for free and I was like, I don't really want to read this now that I heard that he's a shit person. Like, don't waste your time on books that you don't think you want to read. And don't force yourself to read books that you don't think you want to read. Yeah. Um, that's my opinions on the whole thing. I feel like we kind of went on a lot of different tangents with problematic authors, and I don't know if we necessarily came up with a solution. What's your thought? I don't think there is an easy solution. Just, like, it's worth it to take the extra time to really look into authors who are from underrepresented groups who are actually writing books about their experience or not even writing books about their experience at all, but just like taking the time to find people to support rather than going to like maybe bigger authors, but who are shit people. Absolutely. Do you think that like 
I don't think you should necessarily Google search every author whose book you decide to pick up either, because that would just be like a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but I guess if you're going to take the time, if you know that you're going to be spending the time with the book, or if you're going to be buying it, it might be worth just doing like a, a cursory Google search to see what their biz is. But even then, you might not necessarily turn anything up, because all this shit about Mackenzie Lee came up after I bought this book. Yeah. Um, so I think we should move on to our next segment. Um, let's talk about, uh, I posed you a question. I said, tell me about a book that has changed your perspective on something. And that can be anything you like. It was very open-ended. So the first one was School of Essential Ingredients, but it published in 2009 by Erica Bauermeister. And this one is more silly, but it changed my perspective on romance novels slash fluff books. By the way, if you look up fluff book as a definition, you'll get a bunch of different answers. It's basically anything that was written by a woman is a fluff book. Because Twilight was there, Devil Wears Prada is there, Anne of Green Gables is there. Anne of Green Gables is there? Is that not like a historical fiction? It's a fluff book because it's written by a woman and it makes you feel good. Which is very... That sounds... I'm not sure about this definition, my friend. (laughs) No, I was like, that feels weird. But it changed my opinion on romance novels because it is a book about eight people who all attend the same cooking class and it chronicles their personal lives in relation to one another and the food that they make. Like, one of the characters, his wife just died of breast cancer and he's going to this cooking class to try and get over his grief. And then I believe there's another couple whose relationship is kind of falling apart and they come back together through food. And then there's a single mother who's like, I need to get away from my kids for an hour. So she goes to this cooking class. And when I went, like, my mom recommended it. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, mom, whatever. And then I read it <laughs> in, like, an a- in like an afternoon. And it was so good. So it really, Aww. it changed my opinion on romance novels. And, like, how how good they can be and the staying power they had because i still think about that book and i consider it one of my top three favorite books of all time like it was that good and it's it's just such a sweet read i highly recommend it and that was like my more silly changed my perspective the other one cute thank you the other one uh don't have a name for it but because it's an essay and i'm gonna keep trying to find it but it was about mount everest as a cultural product and that hit me really, really hard because growing up, my dad would tell me about he went to the first base camp of Mount Everest and I kind of grew up idealizing this idea of like hiking all these mountains. And I didn't really think about, I just thought of the mountains as like, oh, there's this thing that I can go do. It's just like going to Disneyland. I'm just going to go to the first Everest base camp and not thinking about culturally what that means and what that means for me as a white person to be like I'm just going to hit these off my checklist Hmm. and and so the essay talked about how one Mount Everest is it's been commodified to the point that more people are dying because underexperienced hikers keep going to it because it's seen as like a tourist attraction more than this is a dangerous place you need to have experience to go to it and to actually like make it because you can die and then the people that do die on the mountain they can't be retrieved because it's so dangerous and they become part of the tourist experience like green boots Ah! green boots and sleeping beauty are two real people who died and they're seen as like tourist attractions like oh my god i saw this dead person when their families are real people and they're really suffering 
because their loved ones are, they don't even have names anymore. It's just, oh, I was with this corpse. And it's so creepy and weird. And... Is that not what um, modern archaeologists do with contemporary, with mummified remains and bodies that are shown in exhibits? It sure is. It all comes back to colonialism, baby. (laughs) And, And also the, like, commodity of having... A per, like the Sherpa people like just oh I look at my Sherpa isn't this neat I'm here in Nepal when like that's a real person the Sherpa people is a culture it is a language like a Sherpa is not a job title it's a whole group of people it is a culture so that's something I never knew until you told me. So I guess that sort of goes to show how baked it is into the culture. Yeah, or it's like I didn't know that either until I read this essay, and I was like, "Oh my god, I didn't even know this was an ethnic group in Tibet." Like I didn't know that. I thought it was like, "Oh, it's a job title in a different language." So they talked about how a lot of people go into this industry because that's the main industry. There is this tourist trap. And a whole bunch of people die. That makes sense. And I 100% believe the sort of tourist industry, like the white tourism is real. I saw a lot of it in Peru. Like that, a lot of what you're describing is very much like what happens in, in other countries where people sort of, where backpackers go. And like, there's a sort of commodification of culture, which I think would have to be another episode, which would have to be another episode. <laughs> Ooh, I actually have a book that I'm going to read before we go on our next trip. Um, it's on my shelf right now. It's called The Beyond Guilt Trips by Anu, um, I think it's Taranath. I can't read the title from over here. But it's called Beyond, it's Beyond Guilt Trips, and it's about ethical travel as how you can travel and see the world and try not to be culturally appropriative. And it's about sort of cross-cultural sharing, and it's written by a woman of color. So that's on my to-read list. I'm hoping to read it. I was, um, I've been putting it off a little bit because reading about travel right now makes me sad. So <laughs> I'm probably going to read it a little closer to whenever I get plane tickets to go on my next trip. Um, yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. But you're right. You're, you're totally right, though. Yeah, so just, just to conclude that, just it made me more aware of the language I use and the way I think about travel and the privileges I have as a white person being able to travel internationally. I really, a word that I like, um, or a phrase, I can't remember if I heard it or coined it or what, but poverty tourism is something that I think people should, especially white people, should be extremely aware of because I saw a whole lot of that when I was in Peru and it made me feel really uncomfortable because like I imagine and sometimes I see people who would go to my hometown and be like, wow, look at the indigenous big houses and stuff. That's just so cool. Man, they're living off the land. Like, fuck you. Fuck you, man. Yeah, like, can, you ima- can you imagine if you went to like suburban California and you're like, oh my God, that's a Costco. <laughs> if you're just like, like, wow, these this family, they live in a, they they live in that tourist station wagon. Wow, that's so crazy. You're like, bitch, this is my car. Like, I have a house. <laughs> like, oh my god, that's just it's so cool. Like, wow. This I my, could never do that. <laughs> this is my this is my white person ASMR. And <laughs> I'm going to say, oh my gosh, Becky, it's just like so amazing. 
that you're able to take your family out to Applebee's and it's a weekly ritual you say so can I come I know we just met but I really wanted to be at your can I go to your church I know it's closed but I really want to go to your church and I want to see I want to be blessed by the preacher <gasps> can I talk to him oh but ew does he diddle little boys gross anyway that's my white purse that's my impression that kind of that shot me in the face <laughs> I'm sorry that was such an off topic so I'll talk about my book recommendation then so we can wrap this baby up yeah um, what I asked you what books do, can you recommend by indigenous authors I've given to this episode already which is history of my brief body and love after the end um I want to recommend an author specifically I want to recommend Eden Robinson she's written um, a whole bunch of books. She's a very prolific author and she's written Traplines, which is a sort of collection of short stories. It's been many years since I've read it. She wrote, wrote Monkey Beach, which take place near, not quite where I grew up. And she's currently uh, writing the well-renowned Son of a Trickster series, which has been adapted into a TV show, which I have yet to see. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through Son of a Trickster and it is so good. And I am extremely attached to Eden Robinson as an author which, again, goes to show, sort of feeds back into the theme of this episode, I'm really attached to her as an author because she's from my hometown. And when I was a little kid, she actually hosted a writing workshop in Bella Bella, where I grew up. And I was just like... And that was like when I was first starting to really, really want to learn how to write. So she really inspired me. And it was really amazing to meet her. And my mom is Facebook friends with her. So really sweet. <laughs> no, she's a lovely person. I really like her. Um... So I can recommend it, basically anything by Eden Robinson. The first book that I read of hers, I tried to read Traplines when I was like really little, but I was like, I don't think I can read this. So I read it as an adult and I was like, this is better. Um, Monkey, <laughs> Be Monkey Beach was a book that I read when I was in high school in my, um, for, uh, what was it? First people, English first peoples, uh, 11, I think. Um, and it's a story about a young indigenous girl growing up in Bella Coola. Um, and it sort of talks a lot about her life and her relationships with her family, and a lot of it re revolves around the death of her brother, and I think some other family issues. It's very similar in energy to The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, which is another good book I can recommend, actually. Um, <laughs> the, that book absolutely blew my mind when I was like, uh, fuck, I must have, I must have been like 12 when I read it. And it's illustrated as very much a YA. If you're an adult, you can blow through that bad boy in an afternoon. But if you're, if you're like a, it's more for like a teenager middle school audience. And it's the story of Junior. And he is a kid who goes to, um, who goes to an indigenous school. I'm trying to remember the name of the nation, but it doesn't, but it's, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember it. Um, and he gets really frustrated at the poverty that he has to live in. And it's very much based on the author's own life. And one day he totally flips out because he realizes that the textbook that he's been given to study out of has his mom's name written in it. So it's the same textbook that his mom studied in when she was in school. And he throws the textbook across the classroom and breaks the teacher's nose. And the teacher says, the teacher comes and he forgives him. And he says, I get it. You know what? You should go to this other school. And it is a white school that's about um, 15 miles away. And it's sort of his life living this kind of duality of... It's a little bit of the opposite of what I grew up with because I was a white person who went to an all-Indigenous school and I graduated from there. But he is an Indigenous person who chose to leave the Indigenous school and go to the all-white school because they had more resources. Um, 
it's a really rough book. There's a lot of death and a lot of um, themes of violence. I think Sherman Alexie has come under criticism before because he portrays a lot of alcoholism in his um, in his work, which uh, I know some people take issues with because a lot because you know not every indigenous person struggles with alcoholism. But if this is the um, this is what he grew up with. So I feel like he's writing to his own personal experiences. Um, let me just look up the name of the nation. Spokane. So it's in, so it's Spokane, uh, reservation, which is the same place where his movie that he helped write, um, or he wrote, I believe, uh, Smoke Signals takes place. Um, so that's, so those are my two recommendations is Sherman Alexie. I also read his, um, Sherman Alexie is an incredibly prolific author. He's written a lot of stuff. Uh, he wrote The Inconvenient Indian, I think. Um, and he wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, I think he's got, he has a book that just came out this year or last year called Indians on Vacation. Um, (laughs) and I don't know what that book is about yet, but as far as I can tell, it's, um, about two, like a middle-aged indigenous couple and they go on vacation to Europe. Um, so his books are incredibly good, and I'd be happy to recommend him. Um, I think that's it. Do we have a peek at next week? I don't think so. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, we're kind of, we were going to do the peek at next week for stuff when we, um, uh, when we know what we're talking about, but I feel like I was very rambly this episode. I hope I was okay. I think it was good. All right. In that case, I think let's wrap this bad boy up. Let me pull up my script because I closed my iPad like a dumbass. Um, and so I'm going to say that's going to do it for us this week. The song that we use is Highway Flowers by Bird Creek. If you want to get in touch, our email address is littlequeerlibrarypod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at huckleberry.comics and wake and not a clever namer. Thank you for joining us in our little queer library. Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments. Where bold moves require confident blueprints. Where you can accelerate transformation through consistency. Where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at saic.com cloud.